Hello and welcome back to the Tez News Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Morris. A little later on this hot, very hot Friday afternoon podcast, I'll be talking to Tez Senior Editor Dan Worth about how the changing mat landscape is driving school management information systems into the spotlight. But first, I'm joined by reporter Matilda Martin. Matilda, welcome back. Hi, Joshua. So you've been following this story for a number of months now, I think ever since the school's white paper, in which we learned that the government intended to set up a new online academy, which offers lessons across the UK as part of its efforts to level up education. We later learned, of course, that the government contract would be going to Oak National Academy, which effectively makes them an arm's length body or a quango, similar to the, the BBC or British Film Institute. Now, when this news first broke, our editor, John Severs, happened to have the opportunity to talk to Caroline Wright, Director General of the British Educational Suppliers Association, BISA, as part of our ongoing Education Insights panel series, where she expressed some concern about the evidence base for the plans. It's not fit for purpose currently. Um, I am very, very worried. I think Becky made the good point about the vast majority of the white paper being very well evidenced, but the the section that talks about, which will have the majority of procurements about curriculum resources, is based on a 2018 report of 40 schools before the pandemic. So going back to actually the purpose of why you would have centralised curriculum resources hasn't been evidence-based. There hasn't been any market analysis of how it would impact schools or the commercial providers that provide those resources. And that is incredibly worrying. Now, Matilda, that concern led to BISA issuing legal action against the DfE, which we've now learned has actually been paused. What was the basis for that legal action and why have BISA now held back at the 11th hour? Yeah, so BISA haven't been happy about the idea of Oak becoming um, kind of a a big curriculum resource for schools for a while. Um, They were one of the the first people when it was announced um, in the levelling up white paper to kind of speak out against it, about their concerns. Um, So we found out uh, last month that they were thinking about seeking a judicial review, Um, but we weren't quite sure where that was at. I know that they'd asked for a reply from the DfE by the beginning of this month. Um, We do know that we understand that the DfE replied late, but they did get back to Visa. Um, And as a result, Visa has decided to put any plans to move forward to the legal action on hold. Um, So the reason for this is the DfE have come back and basically said that a lot of the things that Visa were taking issue with and were concerned about still haven't been decided yet. So those are things like the substance of the ALB. So, you know, like, it's funding, who will provide the resources, like the nature of the resources as well. Um, so they can't, they feel they can't really move forward with the judicial review if they're not quite sure, you know, what's going to be happening there yet. So they have made it very clear though that the kind of move to legal action is just on pause. So we'll have to watch watch the space and kind of see how those crunch talks go. Um, I understand they haven't started um, those talks yet, but we'll definitely kind of try and keep on top of it and keep keep you updated about what's going on. So it sounds like part of the issue here is a lot of the elements of this this plan are still up in the air, and it's so it's not only the evidence base for these plans that's caused some concern, but actually whether or not 
Oak National Academy will meet its targets, become a fully operational UK-wide quango by this autumn, right? Yeah, absolutely. So when um, the creation of the Online National Academy was announced in, in the Leveling Up White Paper, um, Zahawi also add, added onto this and said that it would be kind of fully operational um, by autumn with the first, I think it was the first um, kind of content resources available by 2023. Um, we're obviously now in June um, and autumn's not really that far away. Uh, so we were, we're obviously kind of concerned that these deadlines aren't going to be met. Um, so when my colleague Callum Mason yesterday at the CST conference asked Principal Matt Hurt about it, um, he could said he couldn't guarantee that those deadlines would be met. Um, he said it was a complicated process, this creation of the new body. Uh, we're not entirely sure kind of which parts are causing concern at the moment um, and how long it will take uh, for, for those complications to be resolved. Um, but again, it's something that we will we'll keep an eye on. Um, I think it's also tricky because arms length bodies are normally created from scratch, whereas what they're doing at the moment is they're trying to move an already existing body, an already existing organisation and make it an arms length body. So that's always going to cause some issues along the way. Yeah. What is the, what is the general feeling about, um, about Oak National Academy becoming this, this ALB? Of course, we've got BASA, uh, uh, expressing some concerns, but is, is it just them expressing concerns? What's the feeling? Yeah. So I think Oak's always been a bit of a controversial, um, topic really, especially with, you know, the government funding it's received. Um, I think it's a mixed bag. Some people love it and say they will be using the resources when they're available, uh, the new ones. Um, and some people say they've never used Oak and they won't. Um, so that, you know, that it's a mixed feeling, but I think these seem to be the ones that are kind of most concerned um, as the British Educational Suppliers Association. Um, mm. So, yeah, and they obviously have a lot of members who are concerned as well. I guess it, it is hard to tell when perhaps even they don't know what the what what this is going to look like. Of course, this is an ongoing story. And as always, you can continue to follow our coverage on our website, tes.com forward slash magazine. Matilda, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks. Next up, I'm joined by a voice I'm sure you're all familiar with by now, Senior Editor Dan Worth. Dan, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be back. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for hosting for me so many times in the last few weeks as I've been kind of in and out of availability. That's quite right. It's been, been a pleasure. So first up, the DfE have taken a U-turn on plans for two-person admission appeals panels. Now, uh, we first saw these put forward in a consultation on the school's admission appeals code in February. Dan, what were those proposed changes and why did they face some pushback? Yes, well, this is, as you say, February, the consultation came out and they put forward two notable proposals. One, which was to allow two-person admission appeal panel hearings, as you say, and one was to allow remote admission appeal hearings. Now, the two-person one was sort of based, both of these came throughout the pandemic when obviously we were sort of grappling with, dealing with, you know, new issues we never dealt with before. And obviously with people being absent from COVID and, and being off a lot, and we couldn't be in the same room. There was this move to saying, well, actually, if you need to have an admissions appeal, i.e., you know, should these people be actually allowed to go to the school that the parents want them to go to? 
do we need three people to, to rule on that? Is it not easier to get two people together who make a decision? And so this was put forward to consultation. Now, interestingly, actually, in the consultation, 82% of respondents agreed with this idea. They said, yes, we should have two-person admission appeal panels because it'll make things smoother and quicker and, you know, it means there's less sort of time not knowing where you're going to school for the for the child and the family. But even though 82% agreed, the fact that other people raised the concern that, well, what could have happened was if, it, if you have a two-person appeal panel, they disagree, the chair of the panel's decision is final, effectively it means you've got one person making a decision, which people said just doesn't seem fair. And that was a point that was made to me by a couple of legal experts back in the February consultation. At the time, they said, uh, although that's a concern, um, they believed it wouldn't happen that often to really be a, be a worry. But obviously the government ha has actually gone with the minority view here, which someone said did show the value of responding to consultations, because even though you're the minority, you can actually, your voice can be the winning voice, shall we say. Um, and so they decided not to go ahead with these two panel admission appeals, which, which other sort of organisations, uh, schools unions sort of welcomed as well. They said it could have been beneficial, but they see why they didn't go ahead with it. So they sort of welcomed that decision. It's not a completely unpopular idea, but it's the implementation that's raised some concerns. Yes, that was it. I think it needed that there was an issue about how defined it was that you'd have a two-person appeal because it wasn't like it was going to be that you would just do it now standard. It was more like if you if the situation arose where for some reason the third panel member was not able to then take part in the appeal process, you have to wait, find someone else, it drags it out. Could you go ahead of two people? But because they didn't define it entirely enough, that's what one of the legal experts said. It meant that people were a bit wary about it, and so people said, "Well, look, it's not fair to have one person make a decision." Although that probably wouldn't happen very often, the fact it could happen, I think, was enough to make the DfE say, actually, we're not going to go ahead with this, um, which we you know is interesting. It just does show it isn't the value of a consultation. Yeah. Is it then an idea that we're likely to, to see come back maybe in a slightly more considered form? Possibly. Possibly. Some people did say um, they'd like to see it reconsidered. Uh, and I did ask the DfE, but I haven't had a response on that yet. But um, I don't know. I mean, my, my view would in a way, well, given they have consulted on it and they have had this feedback and the feedback was positive, but they thought not to go ahead, what, what would change so dramatically the next time around? Not sure. But, um, but we should mention, and maybe you're going to ask this, I don't know, but we should mention they did, they did go ahead with the remote appeals, which I think is also a notable development. Yeah. So what was the benefit of these remote appeals then and why are they sticking around? Yeah, well, the remote appeals um, basically means as everyone probably know, you can now do it over video or even telephone, actually. Although video is definitely the preferred option, I suppose, because it adds that sense of you're more connected. You're not just sort of talking into the ether, shall we say, on something that's so important. You, know, you want to be able to look at people, see people and talk and, and get your argument across correctly rather than, you know, a bad connection or a sort of crackly phone line. So obviously, again, a pandemic-related um, requirement. So actually, you can see why that makes life a lot easier for a lot of people. You haven't got to get to a school or a specific place all at one time and you know, get through traffic, take time off work, potentially. You can block an hour out and say, right, we're doing the, the call then. You make your appeal. It can be heard properly. So I think, no surprise, I think it was 93%, possibly 91% of respondents were in agreement for this. Um, you know, massive support for it and a bit of a no-brainer, really, to, to let that go ahead. So, again, one that was welcomed by all. There was no sort of... You know, doubting Thomas's on that point. No. So then from, from kind of one smart use of technology to another, we had Christine Horton writing for us in TES this week that as multi-academy trusts continue to grow, a consolidation of tech across the schools in those trusts is needed. And so it is that we have school management information systems become a hot topic again. Uh, how is the management information system market changing now, Dan? 
Mm. This is a fascinating area of, of of the school system that, in a way, is, is you know, it doesn't sound like it on the surface. Maybe you know, management information systems and data capture and all those kind of things can sound a bit dry. But if you think about it, you know, all these schools have got huge amounts of data uh, on everything from attendance, you know, well-being data they gather to you know, contact information and well, who's paying for school lunches, all that kind of stuff. It depends on what platform you have as to the extent of the capabilities. But obviously, as schools join multi-academy trusts, and uh, that's only going to increase, schools are then coming together into maps that also have their own systems, and they want to capture data from the schools and be able to see it and see what, spot trends and patterns and analyze it. Is there any point in every school having its own individual platform if the map could potentially buy a, a you know, one and then use it across the school estate? How do you feed the data in? There's a lot of change happening there. You know, a lot of a lot of um, moving parts to something that probably for a long time prior to now was was quite a staid part of the um, of the system. You've also got the wider trend that, of course, you know, cloud computing, you know, I this thing, the idea that you don't need to have the hardware on the school anymore, you can just do it in the cloud in the same way that people use G- Gmail, you know, just accessing a web service. You can access it in the cloud. So lots of people are moving to cloud platforms as well. And that means that, you know, innovative companies can come into the market as well. Your existing companies can also innovate to bring their products to the cloud. So you've got this kind of new players coming into the market against the existing companies. Final point, you've also got the thing whereby the biggest market player, um, ESS, tried to move customers onto three-year contracts from one-year contracts. Hasn't gone down with, well with many um, schools and mats. There's legal challenges about that and the competition in the markets, authorities looking into it. So you've got all these things going on. I mean, this, this long-term part of the sector that was probably quite stable and you had your provider and that was it suddenly it's all up in the air and all being changed and you're lost to think about for people who are buying these platforms. Who do you go for? What do you want it to do? How do you make sure you're not duplicating your data and have the wrong information in the wrong place and you have the right information when you need it and all that kind of thing? Mm, and uh, of course, another consideration here, as I read in the article, is that you need these different platforms, these different edtech platforms that you're using to be able to communicate to each other through uh, what is known as uh, application programming interface or an API. Mm. You really need that so that you're not uh, kind of caught up in all of this time wasted uh, trying to transfer or connect something from one system to another. You want yes. those edtech platforms you're, that you're using to be able to to do that themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and that's the big thing is, I mean, again, APIs, it sounds vaguely sort of, you know, technical and whatnot. I don't know, obviously, it's on one level, but actually, if you think about it in, a fun, in an easy way, it's like, you know, we've all got, apps on our phone where you just think, oh, I think I could just link that one to that one. So I don't have to go into one app to put one thing, go to another app and then update it and all that kind of stuff. And that's the same thing here. You don't want, you don't want to have to go into seven different platforms to, to find information that you need to check in something else. You want it in one place, log in, bang, there it is. There's the attendance data. There's the behavior data. There's the well-being data. Oh, no, we can see, we can cross-link it. We can see that pupil's identifiable information that we can check things. All of that's great. That's what you want. So if you're buying a new platform, you don't want them to say, oh, well, but we don't connect with the other four platforms you've already got because so you have to log in and out of each of them. And on some level, that might be a specialist software because, you know, a management information system will have a raft of capabilities, but it won't have everything. So a school will also have other software. If they don't talk together, it's just frustrating. It's just time poor. It's, it's inefficient. You know, when you're working at scale, that's important. And, of course, the other fundamental there is that, and this is that's true of all businesses, is that it risks having multiple versions of the truth, as they say. You know, so one piece of software has been updated yesterday, another one was updated a week ago. You log into the one a week ago and you think, oh, right, well, that's how it is. But you're looking at the wrong data. The data's old, it's not up to date. You want to know right now, today, what's the truth? 
you know, and if the platforms aren't talking together or the people aren't updating them correctly or whatever it might be, that's not a good place to be. So yeah, APIs, things that can connect together, things that can talk to each other, makes life easier if it works. Mm. So then what are some of the uh, kind of causes driving this, this shift in focus towards school management information systems? Yeah, well, there's been a few things. I think it's some of the things I mentioned about, you know, the rise of cloud platforms means that, you know, you can be more innovative with who you buy from. There's more you know, updates can come around quicker. You can possibly get better security than if you're trying to do it yourself in-house. There's the fact that, you know, the maps are sort of growing and that means there's more platforms colliding and then probably looking at it, well, why, we, why is each school individually spending money on this platform? We could go to one and consolidate and probably get a better deal and it could be top down or all the school could still have a platform, but they're all using the same one. So we know it will all be the same information. Um, there's the there's the contract situation with EFS Sims, which is making people you know, look at provider potentially again. Maybe, you know, they've been sort of the, the lack of flexibility that, being stuck on a three-year contract they might not like that idea so they go well, actually let's go to a provider that doesn't lock us in so much um all these things are happening at once so we've even had the child children's commission at dame rachel d'souza say management information systems need to be better to enable a real-time snapshot of who's in school and who isn't um so the fact that someone like that is talking about management information systems can't imagine that would have happened so much in the past but now you know it's on the agenda for even someone like her and her role for quite you know important reasons very important reasons so all in all, there's this sort of confluence of factors that mean that suddenly this thing's in the, in the headlines. We know, you know, from talking to Matt CEOs and the like, that they're, they're looking at this, they're changing provider, they're making sure it's fit for purpose. We know that companies themselves are kind of driving hard to show off to the market. It's all up, you know, it's all to play for. It's a big sort of shakeup. I think that's what we're seeing here is a bit of a recalibration of where this market is. Yeah, it sounds then like there's some positives to come from this as well. Maybe it's going to drive some kind of innovation in the sector, like you said. I, I think so. I think, you know, I mean, I was formerly a technology journalist, and so I've seen in a way firsthand how, how fast things can change once momentum gets going in a sector. You think of smartphones, you know, they were, they were Blackberry and Nokia. When I started writing about tech, within five years, it was, it was the iPhone. You know, the iPhone didn't exist, and within five years, it had completely taken over. Now, obviously, we're not in quite the same world as the iPhone here, but we are looking at, you know, companies that are coming in and going, we can do this for you and we can make it work for you. We can be you know, what you need us to be in a way that maybe five years ago it wasn't. And, and with maps growing, with more people wanting to spend money on these platforms, you can imagine that you know, the market share percentages of different companies, which for a long time was dominant to one company, might be a lot more uh, spread out. And then you might see a new company rise up from that and become the dominant player because it just is the most innovative or has the best branding, even the best marketing, who knows. But you know, it will be a bit of everything, won't it? Um, and from that, maybe better products as well. The products that are the best, that do the best for schools, for maps, will be the ones that become the most popular. Yeah, it's it's exciting stuff from an area where maybe uh, people didn't find it as exciting before. Mm. I feel like we've talked a lot on this topic, but the article uh, that Christine Horton wrote is is quite in-depth as well. So if you found this interesting, make sure to go check that out, as always, on our website, test.com forward slash magazine. Dan, thanks for joining me again today. Thank you.